Okay, the reading on your sheet is from John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Therefore, Mary therefore there took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he, did, he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may come, that, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you, are, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Father, would you um, help us to understand uh, your word? And would you help us to, to open ourselves to what you have to say, no matter who we are and no matter what position we are before you? Um, please, would you speak to us? Please, would you guide us? Please, would you make our hearts burn within us as we hear you speak? Amen. We're taking a break um, this Sunday from our ordinary series. We've been going through the book of Acts together as a church since the beginning of the year. Um, and uh, before Christmas, we've been looking through the book of John. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, we've been meeting for food. Um, and we've been taking one of the encounters uh, that Jesus has with different people in the Gospel of John. And so we're back into that this week, for one week only, this week, uh, because it's a special Sunday and because there's food, we're going to look at encounters with Jesus. Um, so what we've just heard is one encounter, or rather we're talking about one encounter um, from Jesus that produces two reactions and that then puts us in one of three positions. So one encounter, we're going to look at two reactions that we see, and then we, sitting here today, will naturally adopt one of three positions. Uh, an encounter with Jesus is it's kind of like one of those icebreaker boats, you know, that, that they send off to the Arctic Circle. Um, it's this boat with a specially designed hull that cuts through the ice, a uh, powerful motor behind it, uh, more powerful than the average boat, uh, just to push the boat, propel it through the ice. A and the way that an icebreaker boat works is that um, the, the, the hull is very sharp and it cracks the surface of the ice and ice will either go in one direction or it will go in the other direction. And the boat pushes on forward. And so an encounter with Jesus is like an encounter with an icebreaker boat. You, you will react in one way or the other. You don't, no, no, one, no one has no reaction. And even no reaction, let's face it, is a reaction. But anyway, that's a, that's a different thing. But this is what we see. Jesus does something. He encounters people. And then they divert one way or the other. They're either broken up or they're made up because of Jesus. So what is the encounter, first of all, the one encounter that really forms the backbone of this story? Well, it says, um, if you want to hold your, the, the text in front of you, if you can read it, um, just says here uh, in verse 1 um, that Jesus went to Bethany and in verse 2 it says they gave a dinner for him there. So Jesus, uh, in this encounter... Um, attends a meal that has been put on in his honour to celebrate him, to, to, to honour him in the city. And it says in verse uh, 2, he, he, um, 
sorry, verse 1. He's with a family that he knows very well. It's uh, Mary, we'll find out, and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And, and from other scriptures and uh, in, the, in the Bible, we know that Jesus had a very special friendship with this family, with these three siblings and him. They knew each other very well. Uh, they were good friends. They loved Jesus. Jesus loved them back. They enjoyed time together. And so Jesus attended their house for this party, put on to honor him. And it says uh, back in verse 1 that he was on his way to the Passover and then he sort of called by Bethany, which was just outside, about six miles away from Jerusalem. Now Passover, we'll we'll think about this in a few moments, but Passover was this big uh, Jewish festival every year. Uh, Many, many thousands of Jews would gather from all over the known world in Jerusalem to observe the feast of Passover. And yet for Jesus and and John, who's the writer of this gospel um, that we have in front of us, Passover had a very special significance because we know, uh, um, and, and the readers of John will know, as you read on, that Jesus wasn't just going to Passover to observe a religious ritual. He was going to Passover to die. He was on his way to the cross. And so when we hear of Passover, that's what's going on in the background uh, in Jesus' mind. So Bethany was a stopover place, um, and, and there he was. But this is the encounter. This is the cruncher. This is the thing that's really uh, going on in the background. The reason why they're having this meal in honor of Jesus was because a few weeks earlier, probably a few weeks earlier, Jesus had just performed the, the greatest miracle that he had ever performed up until that moment. Jesus did many great things. Okay, when you read the Bible, you, you figure out this, this already. He healed uh, the lame person you know, to, to get up and start walking. He, he opened blind eyes. He, he helped people who couldn't hear to hear. He did all these things, and they're all amazing, but the biggest miracle to date was raising his friend Lazarus to life. That's the big encounter. That's the big thing that happened. Lazarus, we find out in in, in John 11, the one before, the passage before the one we're reading tonight, Lazarus was very sick, probably got some infection or other, and he died. But John tells us that four days later, Jesus appears at the tomb. So Lazarus was dead. He was dead and buried. And four days later, Jesus comes to the tomb. Just to be clear, Lazarus was in the tomb. He was decaying. He was decomposing. That's what bodies do, right? When you leave them. He was was a total goner. And it says that Jesus cried out. He prayed out, God May people believe in me because of what I'm about to do. And then he stood there in front of the tomb. The stone was rolled away. And he cried out, Lazarus, come out! And it says there that the man who died came out. Jesus said, unbind him. You know, he's covered in these grave clothes, sort of wrapped up in these grave clothes. Unbind him, let him go. Just, just think about that with me for a few moments because it is incredible. This decaying dead body was on its way back to the dust. That's where we come from, effectively. That's where we go. That's why we say at the graveside when someone dies, dust to dust. And that was where Lazarus was on his way to. And Jesus spoke to a dead corpse. And he spoke words of such power and such energy 
that this dead corpse was somehow able to hear and obey Jesus and be completely restored back to full life and walk out of the grave. His dead heart began to beat. His clotted blood began to flow. His wasted muscles suddenly sprang into action. His decaying bones stiffened and became strong. All of his internal organs began functioning. His sight was restored. And out he came. Who who does that kind of thing? Who... Whose words have such power that he can speak to a dead guy who is physically stinky and he obeys and walks out of the grave? Hence the reason why we come to this passage just now and they hold a meal in his honour. What else are you going to do to honour someone who's just brought your own brother Beloved brother, back from the grave. The meal is the least you can do. They held this this banquet in honour of Jesus because, oh my goodness, he's so powerful. He's so amazing. His his words have such life. We we must honour him in our our town, in our city. We must. We must talk about what Jesus has done. I love this, coming back to our passage just now. There they all are, gathered. We don't know who else is at the table. We know the three you know, siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there, and probably other friends and dignitaries from the town. Look at verse 2. It says, Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. There he is, eating with Jesus. That's what reclining at table means. That, that was a, that's how they did it in those days. You know, tables weren't high like ours with, with seats under them. They would have reclined, you know, sort of leaned, maybe half sort of uh, lying on the ground, just comfortable, taking their time. And Lazarus just happened to be there, having food with Jesus. Making the most of his new life. That relationship restored so this is, the <clears throat> this is the one encounter. This is the one encounter. And like I say, every encounter with Jesus is like an icebreaker. And so what we see after this encounter is two very separate, very opposite reactions. So let's focus on those two reactions. So there is Jesus. Maybe you can picture him. In a crowded room, the hustle, the bustle, the noise, the smells of all the the food, the gathering, the laughing, enjoying time together. There they are, reclining, enjoying the experience. And so what a perfect opportunity for one person, one woman, to express her feelings to Jesus. So she is the first reaction, Mary. And it says in verse 3, Mary, by the way, is, is, is the, the sister of, of the dead man, of Lazarus, who's now alive, good friends with Jesus. It says, Mary, in verse 3, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. I love that word. Can we celebrate that word together? <laughs> nard. Pure nard. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. You must understand this, folks. Mary, 
She was the emotional one. She was the one who thinks with her heart. You know, we say today, that person wears her heart on their sleeves. We say that because we know exactly what that person feels because they just blurted out. They wear it, there's no cover-up, there's no guile. That was Mary. There's no trouble guessing how Mary feels. She's the, the reactive one. She's the free-spirited one. Oh, there goes Mary again. That's her. Her sister Martha, as we learn uh, elsewhere and hear a bit as well, her sister Martha is very different. She's the practical one, Martha. She's the one who gets the job done. She loves lists. She puts on this big celebration. Martha is the thinker. Martha is the reflector. A few paragraphs earlier, when Lazarus died and, and Jesus appeared on the scene, Martha said to him, Oh Lord, if only you'd been here at the time, you might have saved him. And at that time, Jesus engaged Martha in a sort of theological discussion. They debated. And sometime later, Jesus caught up with Mary, the emotional one, and she said the exact same thing. Lord, if you'd have been here when he died, he, he would still be with us. But this time, Jesus saw her weeping. And he wept with her. Martha needed the theological discussion. Mary. Mm. And Mary does this astounding thing. So full of love and, and gratefulness and devotion to Jesus. It says that she anoints his feet with this costly perfume. And wipes his feet with her hair. And this is expensive stuff, the perfume. Not just a dribble either, just a wee touch, save the rest till later. No, no, no. I love this little detail that John puts in. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Over all the food, over the bodies, the house was filled with this aroma that everybody knew. Someone has just used up all the good stuff percolated through the whole house. I don't know if you ever have um, a cheap air freshener at home. Occasionally I buy a cheap air freshener. It lasts about two days, right? And it's still sat there. It looks like it's full, but you can't smell anything. It's just cheap. It's gone. But sometimes, you know, if you get a nice gift at Christmas or someone buys you something lovely, you know, a quality air dispenser thing, goes on and on, doesn't it, for days. Or if you go into a spa, for example, if everyone's ever treated you to go to a spa, often the first thing you smell when you walk in, you can smell the oil, that essential oil, can't you? You start feeling calm already. This was not the cheap stuff. This was the expensive fragrance, the expensive oils that, that, that cling in the air, that hang around for ages. And he, as Judas points out, and we'll talk about him later, but as he points out, this stuff is very costly. He said that, that, that could be worth up to 300 denarii, which is roughly equivalent to about 10,000 pounds. So it's a lot of money for anybody. Ten, 10 grand just been poured over his feet and then you put your hair in his feet and 10,000 pounds. And so the question that I ask when I read this, and I think we should ask together, is why? Why? 
Why didn't she just sing him a song? Why didn't she just bake him a cake? Or why didn't she just give a a special speech or write a poem? Why was she so wasteful? Why was she so extravagant? And the answer, I believe, is this. Mary expressed her feelings the best way, the only way, the highest way that she could. And for her, that looked like taking this incredibly expensive ointment and anointing Jesus' feet. She wasn't the practical one. That was, that was Martha. So throwing a party and making wonderful food, that just wasn't her thing. That wasn't her gift. But Mary showed her devotion in this costly, selfless way, reflecting something of what was beating in her heart for Jesus. And she gave it all. And she wanted everyone else to see how much Jesus meant to her. It filled the house. Don't forget, this was a public action. And so she showed her love and her devotion in the most beautiful, evocative, obvious, and lavish way that she knew how. Because Jesus, he is worth it. He is absolutely worth it. And so she thought, what can I do to prove it to people? First reaction, Mary, lavish, expensive. Second reaction, remember, the ice goes one way or the other. Second reaction was Judas. Judas is like the pantomime villain. Even even the name evokes this sense of, oh, evil, cold shivers down our spines. Even people who don't know anything about the Bible, or very little indeed, know that the name Judas is generally not a good name. It's not a name you give to your kids. Most people are aware of Judas' reputation. He's a bad guy at the the least. He's evil. He's a betrayer. But at this stage in the story, Judas hadn't quite got there yet. He hadn't quite crossed that line. He didn't... You don't just wake up, you see, one day and decide, you know what, I'm going I'm to be a betrayer. I'm going to be an evil person. I'm going to betray Jesus. You don't just wake up and that's the transformation. What happens is it's a process of, of hardening, of wandering, of going further and further and further away. It's a spiral downwards. And so we can see the second reaction right in front of our faces. On, on seeing this horrible sight, and and smelling this fragrance, he objected in verse 5, why this ointment, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, 10,000 pounds, and given to the poor? Such a waste, woman. Look at what you're doing. You're just putting resources down the drain. Just think how many people could have been helped by the money that you've just squandered like that. Anyone, Anyone listening, gathered at the party, may have thought, you know what? That's a good point. That is an awful lot of money just to pour down the drain effectively. Judas appeared to have a valid point. He, he sounds like he's concerned for the poor. It just sounds so caring, so righteous, so pious. What a, what a good religious person he is. But as John, who, who's the writer and narrator of the story, points out in verse 6, he, that is Judas, said this, 
not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he, and he had charge of the money bags and he used to put his hand into it and, and take it. See, the lid is blown off. Judas didn't care about the poor. He just cared about himself. He was the one who was robbing from the poor, not Mary. Note this well. Whilst we know the true motivation from Judas here, because John tells us, others at the time would not. Judas brought up what seemed to be a valid moral objection. He sounded right. He projected this caring concern for the poor, but as we shall find out, his heart was far away from this. He only cared about himself and his own interests. Judas just used religious or Christian language as a cover for his own selfishness. He used it to deceive other people. And so we have the two reactions. Lavish, beautiful, costly, evocative from Mary. Then we have, on the other hand, the one who objected, trying to sound pious and religious, but yet his heart was so far away. He didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care about Mary. He didn't care about the poor. He just cared about himself and what he wanted. Two reactions. But before we move on to the three positions that we might adopt in response to this, we've just got to look at Jesus' answer, first of all. His response. And it's, it's brilliant. Because think about it for a moment. It's kind of set up. It's like a perfect storm here. Does Jesus affirm this lavish act of Mary and in so doing appear to reject caring for the poor? Or does Jesus side with Judas and agree that that lavish act could have been done a bit better just rein it in a little bit. Don't be so lavish. And yeah, give the rest to the poor. What does Jesus do? Which way does he go? In verse 7, we see his words exactly recorded for us. He says to Judas, leave her alone. Jesus apparently saw right through Judas's religious words and realized what was going on in his heart, even when it was not clear to everybody else. He said to Judas, he went on, she was going to keep it, or she had kept it, translations vary, she was going to keep that for my burial. And then he went on to say, the poor you always have, but not so with me. They're with you, long term. I'm only here for a short while. What he's saying is that Mary has done this beautiful thing. She has given me this high honor in all of your presence. And what she did meant more than she could ever know because she is preparing me for my burial. People generally didn't know what Jesus was talking about when he said the Son of Man has to go to the cross and die. Mary didn't know. She did more than she knew. So Jesus is not saying here that the poor don't matter. He's not saying we shouldn't serve them. But what he is saying to Judas and to us, in comparison, we have ample opportunities to help the poor, and we can and we should do that. But he says to those gathered with him that day, I'm only here for a limited time. Mary has done this beautiful thing for me. Let her show her affection and devotion to me while I'm here. 
One encounter, two reactions. I just want to finish by thinking about three positions that we can adopt in response to what we've just been reading and thinking about. Three positions. Position number one, I'll read them out to you, then we'll we'll, we'll go back. Number one, people who realize they need resurrection life and don't have it. That's one type of person who can react and respond to this. You need resurrection life and don't have it. Number two, position you can adopt is that of the religious moral person. And number three, the position you can adopt is that of a true believer and follower in Jesus. So let me explain those three positions and then you can figure out which one most describes where you're at tonight. So number one, people who know they need resurrection life. Let's just not forget, let's not forget, Jesus speaks life to the dead man and he came to life. Jesus is a man who, whose words have power, such deep power that they enable a rotting corpse to hear, to obey, and to respond, to begin living and breathing once again. And folks, let me say this as clearly as I possibly can. If Jesus can do that for Lazarus, imagine what he can do for you. Before raising Lazarus, Jesus said to one of the sisters, it was actually Martha, in their little dialogue, Before raising Lazarus, Jesus said, I, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, there is no life outside of me. There is no life aside from me. There is no meaningful existence apart from what I and I alone can give. Lazarus was raised from the dead. It says many people believed in Jesus because of Lazarus. But that most amazing, astounding, jaw-dropping miracle was not an end to itself. We assume that Lazarus lived a lot longer, but eventually he died an old man. Probably. We don't hear anything more about Lazarus. But this thing is clear. That act of resurrection that Jesus performed on Lazarus is a picture of what Jesus would go on to do fully, completely, in a few days' time. It was foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do when he went to the cross. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember, folks, this meal, it says in verse 1, was six days before the Passover. There's great significance of this festival. Remember, it's 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 the yearly festival. The Jews gathered together to celebrate their release from slavery in Egypt. They reminded themselves how the blood of an innocent lamb kept them from dying during the plagues that God sent on Egypt, especially the last one. And so we see here Jesus stopping by Bethany on his way to Passover, which is on his way to the cross, where he, where he went. And here is Mary preparing his body for the burial that he will receive in a few days' time. Listen, folks, the gospel is this. Jesus died. He resurrected to everlasting life 
so that he can release his people from slavery and provide life to dead bodies. And that is something that Lazarus pointed to. That is something that Mary pointed to. That is something that Passover pointed to. All of these things point to Jesus who went to the cross and died so that we might share his resurrection life. So who needs life? Who needs life? Dead people need life, right? Death, by the way, is not simply when your heart stops beating. For those of you who don't know, I'm a doctor. I know a thing or two about death. Seen my fair share in my professional life. Death is not simply when your heart stops beating. Death is a process that begins sometimes weeks, sometimes months, maybe even years before that eventual moment when your heart eventually gives up. Death, in some ways, can be like a slow train entering the station, slowing down and down and coming eventually to a halt. But death is carried by everyone in some form or other, eventually, if not right now. You may find in your own body, just now, physical reminders that you are not going to last forever. Whether it's aches and pains, whether it's illnesses, sickness, suffering of some form, everybody carries it from time to time, physically. Maybe you carry that sense of death and decay, not physically, can't put it under a microscope, but in your mind, psychologically. You sense that somehow this, this, this darkness or this, this sense of death. You might look alive on the outside, but inside, you feel like you're fading away, shriveling up, nothing but darkness. This might manifest in such things as depression, suicidal thoughts, maybe it's issues with your body image. Do you just hate what the mirror shows back to you? Maybe you carry great weight around on your shoulders and yet no one can see it. Maybe you feel death come on you like that. Maybe you feel death socially, experiencing something of the decay in your relationships, the pain of betrayal, the brokenness of breakups. And so just because you're not lying tonight on a hospital bed does not mean that you're immune, either physically, socially, psychologically, or other, all realms of the human existence. We can and will and do experience the effects of death, the signposts, the aroma, and it stinks. Sometimes it's our fault, let's be honest, our sin. Sometimes we're, we're the victim of other people's wrongdoing. Most often it's a, it's a combination or a mixture of both somehow or other. If you're, you're not used to coming to church and you, you come in tonight and you're hearing me going like this, may I apologize on one hand for my pessimism. Shouldn't, shouldn't church be the place where we come and feel good about ourselves and uplifted? 
And the answer is yes, absolutely. But what I want to do is point out that we all feel these things at one point or another in our lives. But I'm here to declare to you this evening that the good news is that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Look at Lazarus. Jesus can do that for you and your friends and your family and those who are far off. Jesus can bring life to a dead guy who stinks and you're not as dead as Lazarus. What can Jesus do in your life? Jesus goes on earlier again in the scriptures and says, whoever believes in me, although they die physically, yet they shall live, they shall rise again. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, it's about belief. It's about trust. That is how you access resurrection life. That is how you receive the gift of life that Jesus died and then rose again to provide for you. Believe and receive. Trust his words. I've got this, he says through the gospel. I can do this. I have done it. <laughs> and it's for everyone who believes. And in the original Greek, everyone means everyone. It means everyone. Lazarus, as I say, was deader than any one of us here sat this evening. And if Jesus can call him to life, then what can he do for you? Maybe you don't have faith in Jesus. Maybe you don't trust him based on these promises that he gives you. Or may I commend to you, give your heart to Jesus. Trust him. That what he says to you is true. We're going to pray together at the end in a few moments. And uh, if, you, if, you, if this is you, if you are the person who is dead and you know you need resurrection life, we're going to pray together and we're going to go through words that you can use just to get the ball rolling, give you words to, to pray to God. I need that. I need that stuff. Number two, the second position that you can adopt tonight, if you wish, is that of the religious moral person, the religious moral person. See, it's quite possible to look and sound and behave Christian, but not actually be a Christian. Do you believe that? It explains a few things. If you've had bad experiences in church, let me tell you, it explains a few things. Look at Judas. He spent time with Jesus. He saw these amazing miracles. He probably even saw that miracle. He heard Jesus teaching from his own lips. He hung out with the 12 disciples. He was one of them. One of Jesus' inner crew. But yet his heart was far from Jesus. I don't get that. You see, being close does not make you a believer, like Karen was saying. Being close to Jesus does not mean you have resurrection life. There is a danger, folks, 
of looking and sounding and speaking and behaving Christian. Mimicking faith. You can raise your moral questions. You can speak with Christian jargon. You can appear concerned for the important values of the kingdom of God. You care for the poor. You know, you can talk about gospel ministry. You can use Christian language to convince yourself and other people that you are legit. But folks, these things can be a cover, as we see here, for a heart that just loves itself. A cover. It's just a front. It's just an act. So maybe the question you're asking just now is, how can I tell if that's me? Am I just a big actor in all this, or does Jesus really have my heart? How can you tell? Well, ask yourself this, and we're just taking a cue here from from this little passage that we've read here today. How do you tell? Ask yourself this. When was the last time you performed a costly act of devotion or service for Jesus? When did you last lavish service upon the Lord? When was the last time your faith hit you in the pocket? When was the last time you have disadvantaged yourself for the sake of Christ? Listen, folks, just to be clear, I'm not talking about being foolish with money. I'm not talking about taking out a credit card and and sending it all to Oxfam, putting yourself in debt for the next five years. I'm not talking about that. But my question is this, when did you last pour the oil of expensive service on the feet of Jesus, metaphorically speaking? Or on balance, when you really think about it and you really open yourself to honest reflection, do you have a track record that reveals a cool, indifferent heart towards Jesus? Your Christian faith has never really cost you anything. Nothing's changed before or after coming to faith in Christ. Nothing financially, nothing relationally, nothing time-wise has affected you. If you value comfort over the cause of Christ, the chances are you're a religious moral person. But your heart belongs to yourself. If you identify in some ways with what I'm saying, the good news, the good news is that there is always hope. Because as as we've been seeing and reflecting, Jesus brings life from dead hearts. Dead hearts come back to life because Jesus speaks to them. If you are a religious, moral person and you have never really given your heart to Jesus, you can turn and give him your heart right now. He will call you into life right now. But here's the kicker. He'll only do that if you want him to. If that's you, and you're like, yes, I want to give my heart. Again, we're going to pray at the end and I'm going to provide some words that you can use to to pray that prayer, to turn your heart finally to Jesus. Enough of the pretend, the games, the religious speak. Just give them your heart. Third, final position, I believe, we can adopt together in reflection and response to this. 
very briefly. You're a believer in Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. Praise God. Folks, if you are a faithful believer, a follower of Jesus, may the example of Mary in this scripture fire you up to go deeper and further in your love and your devotion to Christ. Folks, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You have never arrived at devoted, full stop. There is increasing layers and depths for you to discover about Jesus that you may not know right now or have experienced. Let's allow the example of Mary to push us deeper into Jesus because he is all that we need. He is more than we need. He will never run out. Push into him. Remember, remember, your devotion doesn't earn you grace. Grace grows your devotion. Did you hear that? Your devotion does not earn you grace. Grace that God shows you through Jesus grows your devotion, and it will grow. Let me speak more directly now to those who are regulars and members here at Foundation Church. We are entering a new season of ministry here at Foundation Church, Belfast. We're aiming high. We have a big vision, but it's going to cost us. It will test our devotion to Jesus. It will test my devotion to Jesus. Mary had expensive oil with which to honor Jesus. My question to you, what do you have in your hands with which to honor Jesus? So we're going to take a few moments now. Guys are going to come up and lead us in some music. To reflect and allow God, the Holy Spirit, to, to speak some of that into our lives. And maybe you are a person who knows that they are spiritually dead and carry that aroma around with you and you want resurrection life. We're going to pray together that you receive it right now. Maybe you're the religious moral person. And again, we're going to pray and use words together to help you give your heart to Jesus. And thirdly, if you are a follower, a believer in Jesus, we're going to pray together again that God would take the fire and stoke it more brightly, more powerfully for him. So why don't you stand with me just now? Helps to stand sometimes to pray, I think. Sometimes people find, again, this is totally down to you, it helps to shut your eyes and maybe even just to hold out your hands somehow to God, just to say physically, Lord, I want to receive whatever it is that you want to give me. So if that, if that helps you to focus your heart and your mind on these words from this prayer, then, then do that. Otherwise, that's, that's fine. You can, just whatever's comfortable. So firstly, a prayer for those who know they're dead 
and yet need resurrection life. I'll pray and then you can respond in your heart after me. Jesus, you say there is no life outside of relationship with you. I know that I need you so that I might have life in place of death. I am sorry for my sin. Thank you for going to the cross and rising again so that I might have life in you. I turn to you, Jesus. Give me that new life that you promised. Amen. Now for the religious moral person. Jesus, forgive my cold heart towards you. I need the life that only you can give. Please, make my heart beat for you and you alone. Forgive my sin. I turn to you for the life that you promise. Amen. To the believer and follower in Jesus. Jesus, you have given me resurrection life because of your grace and your love. I did not earn it, yet I thank you for loving me. Grow my heart bigger in love and devotion for you. May you call out greater acts of service for you so that others might see and hear and experience resurrection life for themselves. Amen.